This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. All right, a lot of scripture today. Uh, Again, the biblical text will just prove to be the holy text that it is, and I, I hope you'll be as amazed by it as I am. But let me jump in from the Oxford Uh, dictionary first and tell you, to covet, to covet, the dictionary says, is to desire greatly something possessed by someone else. Now be honest, we're not just talking about material things, you could be talking about a relationship, a job, a place where they live, a personality trait, particular way they look. Do you ever, of course we do, do you ever fall prey to coveting, desiring greatly something possessed by someone else? A close sibling to covetousness is envy, but there's a slight difference, and it's an important difference. To envy, the same dictionary, Oxford Dictionary says, to envy is to feel a sense of discontentment aroused by someone else's better fortune. Now, those two are certainly related. But envy is what happens, not necessarily when you want what they have, but it's that feeling of less than, a feeling of discontent inside of you that's aroused by their good fortune. Leslie Flynn said it this way, and... The point is belabored in the statement, but I think it's very helpful. Flynn said, the envious man feels others' fortunes are his misfortunes. Listen to that. The envious man thinks that other people's profit is his loss. The envious person believes that other people's blessing is their bane. The envious person believes that another person's health is their illness. The envious person thinks another's promotion is their demotion. The other person's success is their failure. Now, the covetous person feels her feelings can be slaked only by having what the other has. If you're a covetous person, the only way that can be satisfied is to have what the other person has, or at least something like it. The envious person is a little more nuanced. The envious person feels his feelings can be assuaged two ways, either by having what the other has, or, you might guess it, either by having what the other has, or the other person not having it and having what you have, which is not it. Bottom line is, the envious person just wants things equal. We want to be the same. We've mentioned before, but it's true. I mean, this is down in us, not just athletic, competitive folks like me. I mean, it it turns, if you're not careful, turns everything into a competition. But this is down deep in all of us, uh, in every human being. Even go to the preschool playground refrain. Be out there with the three and four-year-olds. You don't hear the three and four-year-olds saying, that's not kind. You don't hear three and four-year-olds say, that's not loving, that's not gentle, that's not merciful, fill in the blank with the fruit of the Spirit. But you hear three, four, and five-year-olds consistently on that playground saying, that's not 
Oh, it's down inside of us. We despise injustice, especially as it relates to us. Now, beyond wordsmithing, however you label it, I think there's a tendency in all of us, I think there's a tendency in the human condition to focus on the condition of other people too much. To focus on that family of people, we all know them, don't we, called the Joneses. Those people that internally we try to keep up with, even if we don't admit it on the surface. There's a tendency in all of us to focus on the condition of other people. It's okay to focus on their condition if it's for their well-being, but the tendency I'm talking about is when we focus on the condition of other people in order to assess our own condition. We measure other people in an effort to measure ourselves. I'll give you a silly example of how that plays out. Silly sounding, but it's very real. I noticed myself years ago as a pastor. Uh, you know, pastors have their measure of success just like other people have measures of success. It's a vocation just like you have a vocation. And one of the things that's been uh, for hundreds of years, well, since the beginning of the church, uh, pastors have also been theologians, and as in, in theologians, they have also been writers. And especially today with the Christian book industry, um, there's a sense if you're a pastor that you got to have a book out there. It doesn't have to be good, you just need a book out there. Um, and uh, you can watch television, watch public programming. I mean, somebody's mama told them that they needed to be on television, right? There's this push to go beyond your own pulpit and be published and all of that. And that process started in earnest for me back when I was 30 years old. I'm 46 now, and I still have not published a book. And I noticed about 10 years ago that whenever I would get a book, and if I knew it was written by a pastor, or even not a pastor, I would turn to the front pages where the copyright and patent and all of those first pages were, and I would notice by their name, uh, you know, their book, how their book was situated in the Library of Congress, by their name often would be their birth date. And I would do quick math to see, Dave, I'd see how old they were. And I remember the feeling, it still lives with me some, you know, if I were 41 and they were 37, Thelma, and I would think, I'm so far behind. Anybody ever, I mean, do you have things like that in your world? Measures by which you measure yourself? I hate that. I hate admitting that, but it's just the reality, and you all can identify. Um, <clears throat> this is an unseemly tendency on our part, and even if you don't admit it, it'll tear you up inside. It'll... Um, It'll eat at you without you even admitting to yourself that it's eating at you. Noticing the condition of other people in order to assess your own condition. To help us with this, I want to look at a story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and it's located at the end. It's the final passage of John's Gospel, John 21, 15 through 23. Look at it with me. We'll read a lot of text today, but it's a fascinating story. This is after the Lord's resurrection. Let's get, get the time. The Lord has resurrected, but he hasn't ascended yet. So it's in that 40-day period where he's appearing to the disciples. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter. They're on the seashore. We'll go back in a moment and set the context. But they're on the shore. 
It's early morning, and after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, and I, I want to say this. Just because you answer the question doesn't mean Jesus is satisfied that you have the answer. You might have even given the right answer verbally, but it doesn't mean that the answer has you. And after Peter responded, hoping that would end the conversation, it's an uncomfortable question. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Then Jesus repeated the question. He will repeat the question to you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Another thing about the Lord, another thing about God. Do you love me? You respond affirmatively, I love you. And God says, take care of others. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? The way That shows how verticality spiritually is only substantiated and vindicated and justified horizontally. Right? You love me, God says? Yes. Well, raise your hands higher. Sing a little bit louder. No, take care of people. Just like the Lord. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt now. When the Lord, a spiritual director, begins to go deep in you, it hurts. He's pressing into the places now. This is not just simple Q&A. This is deep spiritual work, and Simon was hurt. It hurts when the chiropractor or the physical therapist knee deep into that muscle. But it's for your well-being. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Interesting, that third time in the, in the text, Walter Wangerin, a great writer, Christian writer, points out that in the text, Peter literally said, yes, Lord, yes. I mean, affirmatively, yes, Lord, yes. And for those of you raised in the evangelical world, do you remember that song, yes, Lord, yes? Uh, this morning, Lynn Kiesecker, who comes to our church, came up to me and reminded me of Wangerin's point there. Lynn's the guy who wrote, yes, Lord, yes. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Remember that song? We all sung it for years. You know everything. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. I want to say this about the biblical text again. For those of you who have parents or grandparents and you're having to take care of them now, it's a difficult process for them. It's a difficult process for you. This is a lovely text. I'll never forget opening up the little Bible beside my grandmother's stand there in her bedroom. The grandmother who took care of me my whole life and now she's in a nursing care facility and her life is not what it was and and, and granddad's gone, and this woman who was a centerpiece of our town and commerce and church, and now she's tucked away in a little nursing care facility, and I was there with her a few years ago, and I was helping her get her robe on, uncomfortable for her, uncomfortable for me, much better. I would much rather her be taking care of me, but as I, Donna, as I was helping her in that moment, and she was so bothered by that, and that 
um, that paled in comparison to what my mom and her sisters have to do. I got the Bible. Oh, the beauty of the text. And I read this to her. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And I looked at her, Bill, and helped her with her robe the rest of the way and said, we're glorifying God, grandmother. Isn't the Bible beautiful? Isn't the Bible beautiful? Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Stop there for a minute. Peter, in the wake of all that beauty, turned around and said, what about him? Notice Jesus' response. Verse 22. Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's it to you? Anybody ever heard the cliche, what's it to you? Jesus, much deeper than a cliche, pressed into Simon Peter and said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? We often focus on this text and say the most profound question that Jesus ever asked was, Simon, do you love me? I would say in this text, hidden is an equally powerful question. And that question he asked us this morning, what is that to you? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, what I said earlier stands, follow me. Verse 23, an incredible text. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Isn't it amazing that something Jesus said that only the apostles heard could immediately be turned into a rumor in the community? That's called biblical interpretation. And I think it's going to be funny one day when entire denominations stand before God. And he said, you know that whole doctrine that made you split off from the missionary Baptist? That was a rumor. I never said that at all. <laughs> we're going to find out a lot of the things we divided over were rumors, not doctrines. That's another point. The text is beautiful. As best we can reconstruct, this was the sixth recorded appearance of Jesus to groups of people in the biblical text. Now, he appeared a lot more than that, but this is the sixth one that we have in order. And it's the third appearance of Jesus. The text even says it later. It's the third appearance of Jesus to the disciples. You know, the 11 after Judas, the 11 inner core disciples. There's only going to be one more appearance um, that the Gospels, the four Gospels give us, and that's the appearance at the Mount of Olives that results in the Great Commission, going to all the world, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always. So this is the penultimate, the one right before the ultimate, the last, the second to last, the next to last. 
of the appearances of Jesus. The context is, I think there are seven disciples there. The reason I say seven is because the appearance is in Galilee in a fishing setting and seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen from Galilee or from Galilee. So the disciples are back in Galilee. Jesus has been crucified and they're back in Galilee because they've done the only thing they know to do and that is to revert back to their former occupation as fishermen. Jesus is gone and so they've gone back to their nets, the Bible said. The Gospel of John says that it was kind of a, a low night. I mean, a lot, three years before, he had seen them on that same seashore, first time. And he had looked at them and said, first words out of his mouth, follow me, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And they left off with fishing for fish and they followed Jesus and they had three years. And he showed them stars they had never seen before. They hitched their wagon to something so profound. And now it was gone. And they were not following him. They were back at their nets and they were fishing. And it wasn't even going well. How dark was that night as they lowered the nets and there were no fish and they looked at one another? We don't even know how to fish anymore. We don't know how to, can't live with him, can't live without him. John said they had fished all night long and caught absolutely nothing. And then as the sun was coming up, they were near the shore. And in that dusky, pre-lit morning, they saw the silhouette of a man standing on the shore. Later, they would recognize him to be Jesus, but immediately they were unaware. Let's go back a few verses in John 21 and read that part of the story. John 21, verse 4. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And I will say this, he is often near even if you can't discern him. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? And I want to say this about the Lord. He is the ultimate spiritual director, therapist, shepherd, pastor. Because my way of being in the world, at least for God, would have been, if they don't know who he is, they are in despair, they're back at their nets, fix it all by saying, fellas, it's me. But divine epiphanies are not always the most beneficial thing. Sometimes instead of divine epiphanies and immediate spiritual fixes, God doesn't reveal God's self, but God keeps you in the practical moment. And instead of calling you up to divinity, God comes down to humanity. And instead of saying, it's me, everything's fine, God says, fellows, and they look at just a man. And instead of hearing, it's me, the Lord, they hear. Have you caught any fish? Stay in the practical moment. Spiritual things happen there. It doesn't always have to be in a church or around an altar. Could be tossing a ball with a kid. Could be grinding out a hard day at work. Fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, 
good news for you, Jesus is here, walked on water. No. Kept them in the moment, kept them a part of the process. And he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat. And they think that he sees something that they don't see, just a normal guy on the shore. Maybe he's an adept fisherman. Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. What could it hurt? So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, I love the fact that this is John's gospel, and John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. You see the setup of competition already? John's already referred to himself a while ago as the disciple Jesus loved, who said to the Lord, at, you know, uh, who's going to betray you? I mean, he's remembering all the good stuff about himself. This isn't just later in his writing as an old man, but that ambiance, that atmosphere was very much a real part of their lives, always in competition. So the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Again, he's saying, I got it before anybody else did. It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic. Here is a very interesting line. And it shows that you've got to be careful with how you quote scripture. What was Peter's occupation? Bible trivia. Peter's occupation, parenthetical in verse 7, he stripped for work. <laughs> See how you got to be careful with a biblical text? Simon Peter, patron saint of strippers. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work. I think it's the New Living Translation said, he put on his robe for he was naked. There's a reality show, naked fishing, right? <laughs> we're, we're in the text. Stick with me here. We're in the text. He jumped into the water and he headed to the shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards offshore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. There's Jesus cooking fish. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard dragged the net to shore, there were 153. Isn't that interesting? There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. The next verse says that sitting there in that setting, whole group of guys there, seven of them, Jesus looks over to Simon Peter, charcoal fire, fish cooking on the fire, puts a piece of fish on a leaf and slips it to Andrew. And he looks at Simon Peter and says, Simon, just think about it. The fish is cooking, they're quietly eating. They know it's the Lord, nobody's saying anything. 
And Jesus breaks the silence and says, Simon, and his heart skips in his chest, and Simon attends his heart and ears to the Lord, and the Lord whispers. I can see the Lord stoking the fire, not even looking at him. Reminded Simon of that campfire that he was around a few weeks before when a woman walked up to him and said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And the Bible said, Simon said, no. <laughs> I don't even know the guy. And a rooster crowed. And the Lord stokes that fire and the sparks fly and Jesus whispers, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And that's been a translator's challenge for many years. Because that's what the Greek simply says. Do you love me more than these? Multiple translations. It's not just a translator's problem. Direct translators just give it like the Greek gave it. Do you love me more than these? But translations that most of us use, like the New Living Translation, Contemporary English, the New Century Version, texts like that, try to flesh out what maybe the Greek doesn't flesh out and capture the moment. And they do not translation work, but they do interpretive work. And multiple translations render this multiple ways. And, and there are options. What was Jesus saying? And follow the options here. Jesus stokes the fire, hands a piece of fish to Simon, and says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than stuff? Do you love me more than food? I mean, there's a message to preach there. Do you love me more than the material world? Am I worth more to you than mammon and a full belly? Do you love me more than stuff? Second, 153 fish. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They left their nets. And now they are back. And oh, the setup that the Lord makes there, Charles, the setup is they're back to the nets that he didn't want them back to, but he even helps them be full of fish. And he's saying, you can do this again if you want to. I'm not saying it's bad. I'll even make it good for you. I gave you a full net. Maybe the Lord, maybe the Lord was leaving them again with the option. Has there been too much coming and going, too much pain, too many crucifixions, too many whipping posts? Is it too hard? And the Lord points to the full net of fish and says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than fishing? Do you love being a fisher of men or a fisher of fish? It's possible. Do you love me more than these? These six cohorts that you've gone back to life with. Do you love me more than you love these guys? Am I first? You remember I told the crowd, if any man come after me, he's going to have to love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children. Yeah, in his own life, or he can't be my disciple. Take up his cross and follow me. Plausible. Do you love me more than these six buddies of yours? Here's the one I like. One of my favorite translations always is the contemporary English version. And if you want a really readable text, it's really good. I use them all, but the CEV is, is my favorite. Probably my favorite because it's the one that agrees with my presuppositions most, right? That's the one we like, the one that agrees with it. 
But the CEV has Jesus say, watch this. Do you love me more than these guys do? Do you love me more than these others love me? Do you love me better? Are you above them? There's no way to decide conclusively, but I would vote strongly for the latter because the context really points to that. And I want to show you the reason, a couple of reasons that I lean this way. The first one is found in Scripture's portrayal of Simon Peter just a few weeks before. As a matter of fact, to set the context, this was the evening before the Lord was crucified. So we're talking just weeks before the moment that I just described. And let me, let me set the evening for you. The Lord has said, I'm going to die. He has eaten the Passover meal with them. He has dipped a piece of bread in a cup, given it to Judas, and Judas is gone now. I'm talking about a night full of emotion. Passover meal, he's going to die. Judas is sent to betray. He teaches them about loving one another. He washes their feet. He institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, the Greek word Eucharisteo, where he lifted the bread and gave thanks, Eucharisteo, to give thanks. And in that setting, the disciples said with their feet wet and the broken body of Jesus in their belly and Judas gone, when they opened their mouth, they began arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. They began arguing about which one of them would be the most important in the coming kingdom. In that setting, look at Luke 22, it tells the story. After the meal, he took another cup of wine in his hands. Then he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for you. And with it, God makes his new covenant agreement. The one who will betray me is here at the table with me. The son of man will die in the way that has been decided for him, but it will be terrible for the one who betrays him. Then the apostles started arguing about who would ever do such a thing. Now notice the juxtaposition. And then they argued about which one of them was the greatest. Now why would they argue about which one of them is the greatest? The line before tells you why. Because they were arguing first about which one of them was the worst. And tied into our arrogance is our insecurity. As a matter of fact, my dad always told me to be compassionate to arrogant people. And he meant that. Never let them buffalo you, Stan. He always told me they need you. They drive people away, but they need you. He reminded me of that as I went into ministry. Never be buffaloed by arrogant people. They need you because they are either incredibly ignorant or they are incredibly insecure, and either way, they need you. We argue about who's greatest because we wrestle inside Gene with who's worst. Another of the Gospels doesn't say they argued about who would ever do such a thing. I mean, do you hear the incredulous tone? They're arguing, who would ever do? That's beyond the realm of possibility for guys like us. 
that's beyond the realm of possibility for a person like me. They argued about who would among them do such a thing. The latest gospel written with more reflection said they didn't argue about who would do such a thing. The latest gospel said that when he said, my betrayer sits here, you remember what they said? Is it I? Good spirituality is recognizing inside of you a capacity. A capacity to do despicable, deplorable things in the wrong context, in the wrong setting, through weakness and vulnerability and circumstances. I'll never forget an epiphanous moment in my life 15 years ago, broken down and battered. After living my life as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, perfect in the law, Paul said, circumcise the eighth day. After living my life scrupulously and sitting there 15 years ago as a young, broken minister, lovingly one day hailed by a fellow that many of you know named Rubel Shelley, he called me in my shame and embarrassment and said, meet me. I met him at, I'll never forget where we sat on that wall at Mere Bulls in Brentwood. And as I leaned over those roast beef sliders that I didn't even have a stomach to eat, I wept. I remember in humility and shame, I said, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I'm here. I thought Rubel pastorally was going to wrap his arms around me and say, there, there, Stan, let yourself up. Instead, he leaned across the table almost viciously and said, well, you arrogant, and I can't remember what he said after, but I don't think it's appropriate for here. <laughs> he said, you arrogant. And Ron, I remember I reeled back because I thought I was in a humble moment. I reeled back and battered by the blows. I looked at him. And he looked at me and he said, you can't believe it happened to you. You can't believe you did it. He said, you know what I've known about you for years is you're merciful, you're kind, and you're gracious. He said, you're known as a guy who tells people they're the beloved. You pick people up who are battered and broken. You put them back together. He said, you know why? Because you believe that it happened to all of us. He said, heck, Stan, if it would have been me. He didn't say heck, but he said, Stan, if it would have been me, he said, if it would have been me, he said, you'd been the first one there. And you'd said, oh, Rubel, it's okay. You're just a human. Come on, man. You can get it. You'd have given me grace after grace. But listen to yourself, Stan. I can't believe this happened to me. He said, you believe it happens to the rest of us dummies. But no, not Stan Mitchell. And as I hung on to the ring ropes, he softened. Oh, what a moment, divine. He softened and he looked at me and it was like a born again experience when he softened and looked at me, Steve, and he whispered, welcome to the human family, Reverend. Welcome to the human family. Welcome down here where it's safe to live. Welcome See, when angels fall, they become demons. When humans fall, people pick them up and restore them, considering themselves lest they also be tempted. Lewis said, you cease making yourself a god, you'll cease being a demon.
Then the apostles started arguing about who would ever do such a thing. Ron, I always pointed out, but I'm so thankful. Thankful for your friendship, number one, Ron Baldwin. We've been through a lot together. But when Ron masterfully painted that Lord's Supper to turn this gymnasium into a sanctuary for us, we gave this million-dollar artist $700 of paint, and he painted that Lord's Supper. I remember the day we were standing in here, and Ron said, do you know which one's Judas? Long story short, I was thankful that I couldn't pick out Judas. It had been wrong for Ron to put horns on him and yellow teeth and sulfurous breath, wouldn't it? That's the way we paint him, but that's not the... You know why we paint Judas that way? We paint him that way for the same reason we paint our heroes the way we paint them, because we don't want to admit we have the capacity for those extreme ends of the human psyche. We put Rosa Parks on a statue because God knows we can't do something that costly. And we make Hitler cliche because God knows we can't do that. And yet the reality is we all have the better and the worse angels of our nature. The apostles started arguing about who would ever do such a thing. And it's interesting that they didn't scoot away from Judas and say, well, I think we all know. <laughs> you, know how, you know how Judas was actually perceived amongst them? As Max Licato reminded us years ago in an early book 30 years ago, he said he was probably the robust, jovial guy with the kind face. Because when the 12 of them pulled their money together and said, hey, we got to have a treasurer. You remember who they picked? The guy with the most trustworthy face in life. His name was Judas. He had the bag and bear what was put therein. The apostles got into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. So Jesus told them foreign kings ordered their people around. Powerful rulers called themselves everyone's friends, but don't be like them. The most important one of you should be like the least important, and your leader should be like a servant. Who do people think is the greatest? A person who served or the one who serves? Obviously, people think it's the one who served, but not so in my kingdom. I've been with you as a servant, and I'm God. I got to close. Let me just give you this. There's, there's so much more here, so much good stuff. Mark records Peter's response this way. Look at Mark 14, verse 26 through 31. They sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to his disciples, all of you will reject me as the scriptures say. I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, but after I'm raised to life, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter spoke up and said, even if he would have just said, no, I won't betray you. If he would have said, no, we won't betray you. But no, Peter heard the Lord say, you're all going to deny me. And Peter said, even, listen, even if all the others reject you, because I could totally see them doing it. I never will. Jesus replied this very night before a rooster crows twice. I want to tell you something about the Lord that my mentor, Brother Hardwick, taught me. The punishment and correction should never be more public than the failure. 
The Lord didn't call him out and say, this very night you're going to deny me until Peter stepped forward and said, I won't, even if all these others do. Jesus said, well, as a matter of fact, I wasn't going to say this, but now I need to. This very night before a rooster crows twice, you will say three times that you don't know me. But Peter was so sure of himself, and I would add, Peter was so unsure of himself that he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never say I don't know you. By the way, Mark's gospel came under the influence of Peter, we traditionally believe, and Mark's gospel adds, all the others said the same thing. So even in the end, Peter's saying, I wasn't the only one, because we got to keep it fair. Oh, Peter, just be quiet. This is a time for humble silence, not pompous, arrogant comparison. Even if everyone else, I never will. Not just, no, Lord, I won't, but he had to point out his superiority. Three denials followed a few weeks later with three questions, lovest thou me? And back to the original text and setting, now I see Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, reflecting on the past, reflecting on a couple of weeks ago and another campfire, do you really still believe that you love me more than all of these fellows do? Another reason? The Lord then says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He predicts Peter's martyrdom and crucif crucifixion, and he renews the call, follow me. And Peter's response, John 21, 19 through 21, put it up there, Mike. Peter's response to all of that, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. The one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper. And in the wake of all of that, in the wake of Simon, do you really love me more than these? In the wake of that, Simon says, Lord, what about him? Good night, Peter. After all that, and you're still focusing and worrying about one-upsmanship and futile comparisons, other people's journeys. When Nina was preschool and Stan Jr. was in second and third grade, we would say, buddy, it's time to go to bed. And he never said, it's too early or I want to stay up, but he often said, what about her? It wasn't so much that he minded going to bed, he just didn't want her staying up. Nina and Rowan and Joey, our little neighbors who come to church here, I look at them the other day and I say, hey, you better pick those flip-flops up. Annabelle, our old hound dog, is going to get hold of them and chew them up. Five minutes later, I came down, there. they're still on their iPods, and Annabelle's in the middle of 43 pieces of shoe. And I say, gang, look up from your iPods. They look up, and it's Rowan's shoe, and Rowan's like, oh, my shoe. 
Nina and Joey just keep on playing. They could care less. It wasn't their shoe. And I say, guys, I told you Annabelle's going to get that shoe. And Nina looks up and says, wasn't my shoe. And Rowan says, but he told all of us. And I said, she's right. Am I my brother's keeper? Is that my shoe? And I say, y'all clean it up now. Rowan starts cleaning it up, and Nina's like, why do I have to clean it up? It's her shoe. I say, Nina, help her clean it up. It's y'all's shoe. It's your responsibility. You are your sister's keeper. Joey is still over there on his iPod. He's the little guy. I don't make him clean it up. Nina and Rowan picking up every piece. What about? They didn't ask not to do it. They just want. Why? Because something loves company, doesn't it? because we gotta keep it fair. I'm closing. Instead of harshly rebuking Peter and explaining to him all that Jesus understood about his fragile, frail psyche, listen, all you competitive folks, listen. Rather than diagramming for Peter a clear assessment of why he was that way, Jesus again did what Jesus often did, and he left Simon Peter with a question to sort through instead of an answer to memorize. And that's the difference between good religion and bad religion. Jesus will leave you with questions to sort through instead of answers to memorize. And he didn't demand an immediate response. Jesus said, what's that to you? Follow me. There's so much about that I love. Number one, I love the question because it's so relevant to me. Number two, I love the pedagogy, the method of Jesus, teaching by way of questions. And I'll tell you the thing I think I love the most. He asked him a question that the guy couldn't possibly know how to answer. He asked him a question deep enough that it would, call, it would create soul work for the rest of his days on earth. He asked him a question, Donna, and then looked at him and said, follow me. And that was Jesus' way of saying, you don't have to answer all the questions before you get to follow me. Some of the questions are only answered by following me for a lifetime. Jesus didn't say, what's that to you? Now you're going to sit right here and go nowhere until you get that fully deciphered and answered. There's no following me with unanswered questions, unresolved issues, or unclear doctrine. No, that wasn't and isn't God's way. Because Jesus knew that true conversion and repentance sometimes takes a whole lifetime and then some. True conversion doesn't come by way of hearing and memorizing textbook answers. And the good teachers in this room know that you not only want the answer on the test, you want to see the work as well. I even had a, a calculus teacher. She would give almost full credit even when the answer was wrong if you did all the steps. And I'll tell you about her, she would count off significantly if you gave the answer without the work. True conversion comes by following God honestly, not memorizing answers. And there are no shortcuts to holiness. There are none. And the thing I will leave you with is a few weeks before the Bible said these Dejected fishermen headed back to their nets, met the resurrected Christ, and the Bible says so beautifully, when they saw him, they were glad. Our text 
in the message, Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, says that Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said, you're going to die following me. Lovest thou me more than these? Follow me, son. And the message says that Peter's response was this, turning his head away from Jesus and looking at John. He said, what about him? And Jesus said, what is that to you? What does that have to do? And our homework this week is to live with that question. When I look at my friend Janice Sims, no hair now, chemotherapy, early 40s, three kids, two of them teenagers, cancer in her bones and liver. And I whispered to her, Janice, this is an important question. As some are healed and some aren't, as some cancer is getting better and others aren't, there will be so many occasions for you to look and say, why them? Why me? That's the real stuff. But as you look at other people's marriages and other people's homes and other people's money and other people's scores and other people's feel the Lord this week as you look at other people's cars and other people's ages and other people's looks and other people's personalities as envy Dave starts creeping up. You're voted the best chiropractor in Franklin, but when it gets inside of you, I wonder if that covers Nashville as well. Feel the Lord turn your chiropractic head back to him and say, what's that to you? What's that to you that they've opened up a new office? What's that to you? Follow me. You and me will do our own deal and it'll be just fine. That's good homework, folks. And when the Lord said, what is that to you? Don't shake your head and answer quickly because that's where the real soul work is. As I sat there with that open book at the front looking at another young pastor who's written his third book before I've written my first one and I begin to feel less about myself and the Lord says, ooh, right there where you're hurting. What's happening there, Stan? And I said, that's a good question, Lord. And that's where the work of holiness really is. Can you say amen? Live with that question this week. It's good homework for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. And bless these folks who live this life that you've called us to so well, who have been such a blessing to me. Bless them, Lord. Pull their face back to your face and hear them as they tell you they do love you and help them to hear you. What is that to you? Follow me. Thank you, Lord, for this good day and this book called the Bible. Thank you for transforming us. We pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen.